Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How's your week been, Dave? Good. Good, yeah. Just uh, rolling along here, getting closer to my 49th birthday next Tuesday. Okay, so we're admitting Our, the number now. Last time it was right. 35. Uh, gained gained a fortnight in, in a week. So okay. it's right. still been a good week, even though it feels like 14 years. So Yeah, yeah. Well, 49 isn't 50, so it's positive. All right, well, good. So last week and this week, we've kind of paired these episodes together as we're taking a look at the key battleground states for the presidential election. Last week, I'm sure you all listened, but in case you didn't, we talked about Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona. Three states that are traditional states that need to go red in order for a Republican candidate to win. This week, we're shifting our focus to Pennsylvania, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, three states that until the last election were thought to be part of the big blue wall that would guarantee a Democratic victory. And of course, two of those three went Republican last time and contributed to Donald Trump's surprising victory over Hillary Clinton. Big news, of course, coming out of that region, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, all very excited by the return of Big Ten football. Will that be the deciding factor here? I remember way back when, maybe two months ago, saying that there's something about the Big Ten not playing or playing that would, would have an impact on the election. So I was kind of interesting that this week, uh, President Trump um, taking credit for uh, peace <laughs> in the Middle East and football in the Midwest. So let's turn to the headlines. And again, our focus is going to be on Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. And, and Dave's going to give us some analysis of some of the key counties to look at in those particular states. But before we go there, we just want to take a, a big picture view of the overall map. If you go on Real Clear Politics, which is our, our kind of go-to site for all of this, they've got Joe Biden starting with 222 electoral college votes and 125 for Donald Trump with 191 listed as toss-up. Now we're gonna take 10 of those 222 and put them in the toss-up pile, that's Minnesota, and say so there's basically 201 votes in play now, we can imagine outlier circumstances where you get a big Biden win or a surprising Trump victory. There's plenty of days between now and Election Day. But let's, let's assume those are pretty well locked in. And if you think then about what's going to have to happen for Donald Trump to win, he's going to have to get 145 electoral college votes out of those 201. Or to put it a different way, he can only afford to lose 56 Right. He's got to get about 70% of those votes. And, of course, if Joe Biden can get 58, then Joe Biden wins. Obviously, 57 is the disaster scenario of a deadlock tie, and, and we go to the House of Representatives. Now, it's interesting, given the, the groups of states we're looking at last week and this week, that Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, together, that's 56 electoral college votes. Okay. So, so it's theoretically possible that President Trump could lose all those states, all four of those states, and win the election if he can carry all the other toss-up states. That would include New Hampshire and Nevada and Texas and Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, et cetera. So if he gets all those other states, he can afford to lose 
Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. On the other hand, the three states we looked at last week, Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona, total those up, you get 55. So again, there is actually a theoretical path where he loses Florida, North Carolina, and Arizona and can still get to 270, or in this case, 271 electoral college votes if he wins all those other toss-up states. Now, another way of looking at this is to look at the polls and to work our way down the list from those states where he's furthest behind Joe Biden to the states where he's the closest. And so if you do it this way, Minnesota is the state furthest out of reach. Uh, Joe Biden has about a 10-point lead there in the Real Clear Politics average. Next is Wisconsin, 6.7-point lead. Then we come to Arizona at five, Michigan just under five. So that's 47 electoral college votes. Assuming he wins all the other ones, that would mean he'd have to get Pennsylvania, Florida, North Carolina, New Hampshire, Nevada, the rest of those toss-up states. He can win losing those four that are furthest away from victory at this particular stage of the campaign. But it does mean he's got to win Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, where currently, according to the Real Clip Policy average, he's about 4.3 points behind. And of course, it assumes he gets Florida, North Carolina as well. So this is, this is the map as it's beginning to settle down. And as, as you look at the map, Dave, and as you think about some of the research that you've done and some of the analysis that you've done, what, what, what are the kind of scenarios that you're looking at, that you're imagining watching for come November 3rd? A Halloween-type scenarios <laughs> or scenario. So I, uh, one of the neat features on the Real Clear Politics uh, site is that you can create your own map. So you just click the Create Your Own Map button, and then what will happen there is you can take a look at the states that are in gray that are toss-up states, and you can put them uh, in one of the two uh, campaigns. So first thing I'm going to do when I, when I look at your map that you have there, map uh, uh, Biden at 212 and, and Trump at 125, is I'm going to take Texas, 38 electoral college votes, and I'm going to put that in the Trump camp. I'm going to do the same thing with Iowa. I'm going to do the same thing with Georgia. And then from last week's conversation, I think I came out of that research more confident that Trump could hold Florida and hold North Carolina, but in all likelihood, he is going to lose Arizona. He's going to lose Nevada. He's going to lose New Hampshire. So when I do that and I give Trump Maine 2nd Congressional District and Nebraska 2nd Congressional District, we are left with 64 electoral college votes, um, or 74, excuse me. And those 74 consist of the following five states, Minnesota 10, Wisconsin 10, Michigan 16, Ohio 18, and Pennsylvania 20. I give Trump Ohio, track with me here. I give Biden Michigan, and now where we're at, 249 to 249, with the three states that we wanna discuss today. Uh, Minnesota 10, Wisconsin 10, Pennsylvania 20. Now, what did my research tell me today? I think that Trump very likely takes the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, he's he's uh, popular there in, in regions. I think he can continue to build upon his success in 2016. Uh, but I think that Minnesota 
and Wisconsin are further out of reach. Don't do so, this, Dave. No, if I if Don't I had to this. make my prediction, make my map on September nineteenth, two thousand twenty, my map has. 269 electoral college votes for Joe Biden and 269 electoral college votes for the president. That's an amazing result. Yeah, I I told you this was possible last week when you looked at the the simulations. So this is not just conjecture, right? This is research. (laughs) Okay, so these are the Democratic states that you'd think would go Democratic doing just that. The Republican states that you think would go Republican and congressional districts that have gone Republican going Republican. And then you're left with the six states that we're talking about last week and this week. And in our conversation last week, Arizona seemed very far out of reach. Florida and North Carolina more in reach. Um, He's won those states before. They're good, strong Republican states. I can see him winning North Carolina and Florida again. And then we get to this week where I think of the three states that we're talking about, he's most well positioned to do well in Pennsylvania uh, and least well positioned uh, in Minnesota and Wisconsin. So this is, this is not a Halloween scenario that couldn't happen. <laughs> All right. Well, well, we'll keep an eye on it, but only 2020 could do this to us. Yeah. And then like War of the Worlds, you know, sometime late November, early December, right? You just have to get, get all of them, all of the bad things that could happen. So. Right. All right. Very good. Thanks. Appreciate this. All right. So 538, building upon your analysis there, had an article this week entitled, Why Pennsylvania Could Decide the 2020 Election. And it looks at shifting voting patterns in the state and its importance to both Biden and Trump's pathways to 270 electoral college votes. And so according to their calculations, the state had a 31% chance of being the most important state in the election, the one that tipped the election one way or the other. Um, And they also found, kind of the way we were looking at things last week, that if Trump wins Pennsylvania, he wins 84% of the time in their simulations. And if Biden wins Pennsylvania, he wins 96% of the time. So again, both sides, this is one of those states that, that makes a huge difference. We said Florida was that kind of a state last time, and now we're saying Pennsylvania, especially of the three that we're looking at today, has this outsized influence on the overall outcome of the race. And again, not surprising because these are the two largest states we're talking about, 20 electoral college votes in the case of Pennsylvania and 29 in the case of Florida. So let's start with Pennsylvania, Dave. Let's, let's take our deeper dive. I know you've done a a bit of research on this. So take us through some of the key indicators we can be looking for between now and the election and election eve as we try to figure out just which way Pennsylvania is going to go. Well, when I looked at Pennsylvania, what I saw is an important macro level shift that's taken place between 2008 and 2016 uh, that's heading in the right direction uh, for Republicans. And in particular, because this is going to be a central uh, tenet of what I have to say, in particular for President Trump. Uh, In 2008, uh, then Senator Obama received 3.276 million votes, uh, about 600,000 more than John McCain with uh, 2,656,000 votes. In 2012, President Obama's vote count went down dramatically. Uh, He lost 300,000 votes down to 2.99 million votes. Uh, Mitt Romney had about the same amount of votes as John McCain, uh, so it made it a closer election. In 2016, 
Hillary Clinton received 2.926 million votes. So once again, another slide of about 60,000 votes. But here's where there's an important difference between Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Minnesota. President Trump won 300,000 more votes in Pennsylvania than both Mitt Romney and John McCain uh, four years and eight years before him. So he outperformed the early Republicans, as you saw a Democratic, Democratic slide in Pennsylvania. And I think that if I had to explain this, given the research that I did, one word that kept on coming up over and over and over again as to why Republicans are doing better uh, in uh, Pennsylvania, and in particular, why many Republicans like President Trump in Pennsylvania is the word condescension. Uh, this, this idea that the Democratic Party and its candidates had been condescending uh, to um, rural folk. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't take too much to think back to that important line uh, by President Obama, where he refers to working class voters in old industrial towns and says, they get bitter. They cling to their guns or religion or antipathy to people who aren't like them or anti-immigrant sentiment or anti-trade sentiment as a way to explain their frustrations. Perhaps the line that most captures this idea of, of condescension. And I think it's really kind of a reaction to that condescension that has served uh, uh, President Trump well in Pennsylvania, and I think might serve him well once again in this election in 2020. With this caveat, I'll say it over and over again in today's show, perhaps the worst candidate that Democrats could have put forward in the Midwest in a place that is reeling was Hillary Clinton, uh, who seems to be the um, perfect representation of the condescending personality who doesn't care uh, for the people uh, in these places. So, and this is seen, uh, by the way, in the particular instance of, of Bucks County, uh, a county uh, that has uh, working class Democrats, it has moderate Republicans, and it has uh, more of your um, lifelong Reagan Republicans there as well. Uh, and that's a, that's a place where she did well among elite voters, but she had a much harder time convincing uh, lifelong Democrats, uh, working class Democrats to vote for her. So if what's happening in Bucks County and likewise what will be happening in the western uh, part of the state in Erie County uh, happens to Joe Biden again, then he, he's in great and serious trouble in Pennsylvania. Can he overcome uh, that, that Clinton uh, persona? A lot of people say, well, he's six-pack Joe, he can, but that'll be very, very important if he's going to hold off uh, Donald Trump in the state. And you wonder how much his personal connections to Scranton, and certainly it seems a little bit different from the way that Hillary Clinton repositioned herself. Yeah, and two other words that, that may help out Joe Biden more than they did Hillary Clinton uh, that were in many of these articles, a sense of loyalty uh, and a sense of strength. They wanted those two uh, things in a candidate. Uh, and you often see, right, the Joe Biden commercials emphasizing that he has roots here. He's strong. He's he's a loyal person. He knows, you know, the, what you've gone through uh, and he's going to tend to your security. That's that, that's a, another key element that I saw in these articles. So uh, we'll, we'll see you know, whether he whether or not he's able to do it. But Pennsylvania seemed to be the of the three states we're talking about today kind of the, the, the perfect storm uh, for President Trump once again, a place where I feel very confident that if he works there over the next um, seven or eight weeks that he could very well take Pennsylvania again. And, you know, one thing that's surprised me to this point is it doesn't seem like the Trump campaign has been able to make as much with some of the environmental 
policies that, that Biden has embraced, especially really turning over his environmental policy to AOC and to the left-wing part of the party, you would think that that would have a lot of impact on the voters in Pennsylvania, especially Western Pennsylvania. And I think it has had some, but I guess to me, this seems like a story that hasn't quite been fully told or fully exploited by the Trump campaign to date. All right, let's shift our focus now to Wisconsin. So the state that probably came to represent the follies of the Hillary Clinton campaign, had never visited. They thought they had this solidly in their corner, despite the fact, of course, that Scott Walker had won election, re-election, won a recall election, had demonstrated that Republicans were viable statewide candidates there. President Trump was a narrow victory on election night in 2016. What's your analysis show about the prospects of a Trump or a Biden victory in Wisconsin, Dave? Well, in Wisconsin, as in Pennsylvania, there's been a steep decline in the Democratic presidential vote over the last eight years. Uh, You had President Obama receiving 1.67 million votes in 2008. Uh, That number declined about 60,000 in 2012 to 1.62 million, uh, and then declined, as you mentioned, uh, tremendously in the 2016 race. Uh, Hillary Clinton only received 1.382 million votes, a decline of 240,000 votes. It's a dramatic decline uh, of uh, 15 to 20 percent of the vote from uh, the 2012 election. Uh, Meanwhile, on the Republican side, uh, John McCain received 1.26 million votes in 2008. Romney, perhaps with help from Paul Ryan, his vice presidential running mate, uh, received 1.4 million, a little over 1.4 million. And uh, Trump received around the same 1.4 million uh, in 2016. So uh, actually, Trump received less votes than Romney in Wisconsin, but won Wisconsin, which is a a telltale of, of what happened there. So what I wanted to do in Wisconsin is, is take a look at, you know, where were the counties where there was a, a dramatic shift in the vote? And there are two counties in particular, and, and we'll thank our uh, research assistant once again, who we're looking for a pseudonym for, uh, for uh, highlighting these two counties, uh, Juneau County and Richland County, which are rather small counties, uh, 18 to 25,000 individuals. But in both of these counties, these counties went um, dramatically in the direction of President Trump uh, in 2016. Uh, so let me put that in real terms. In, in 2012, the, um, the Democratic candidate received 53% of the vote. The Republican candidate received 46%. Trump increased that number from 46 to 61% in Juneau County. Uh, so he really kind of flipped the electorate in Juneau County. And the same thing happens in Richland County. So the question is, what is going on in these counties that uh, make Trump so appealing? So I took a look at uh, economic data. And certainly uh, these counties haven't fared well uh, economically over the last 10 years. Uh, they're counties that really over the last 70 years, they have population increases and then declines. And really steadily over the last 10 or 12 years, people have been moving out of these counties. So then I went to the local newspapers, the uh, Juneau County Star-Times and the Richland Center Newsbreak. And it was really interesting when you looked at those two newspapers as to what's being highlighted in the local news. And really two things come out over and over again in the local news. 
crime and COVID, crime and COVID over and over again through the pages of, of these uh, papers. So then I looked at uh, crime data in, in both of these counties. And what I saw was that crime data was actually going down. But when you look at the newspaper coverage of what's happening in these rural counties, it, it um, paints a rather bleak picture. It'll be interesting. This is, I think, the key. In the exurban to suburban parts of Wisconsin, where there's been a less dramatic shift in terms of the economy and all the rest, will those uh, people come out and, and vote uh, for President Trump? Uh, or will they, um, will they vote for Joe Biden? And uh, someone who knows a lot about Wisconsin politics, Scott Walker, emphasized just this. He said, for President Trump to win Wisconsin, he has to win those cities with populations somewhere between 30 and 150,000 people to win. Yeah. And you wonder, you know, this is one of the stories that the Democrats were trying to tell at their convention, say, well, okay, you have this group of people that are down and out. They've struggled across the decades, uh, but now you've been president for four years. And if things haven't improved, if, if COVID is the story and the secondary story is crime and you've been president all this time, obviously the democratic message is, shouldn't you have fixed this? You wonder if the same playbook will work for Donald Trump four years into his presidency that worked in 2016. Can you still be the outsider who cares in a way that Democrats say they care, but actually haven't? Yeah, and that was interesting. That just that what you pointed out that that Donald Trump in Wisconsin is running as the outsider candidate, the the uh, the non Washington D.C. candidate, which is interesting. And if um, if he can pull that off, and and certainly there's a way I think that he can pull that off. If he can point out that he's kind of up against forces in Washington D.C. that wouldn't allow him to do some of the things that he would like to do, and that he needs to do more of them, uh, perhaps he can win over those voters. But that that's going to be a problem for him if if, uh, if voters don't buy that. And then the second thing is that, of course, you know, when you lose 240,000 votes between 2012 and 2016, you pay closer attention to the state. And I think this is exactly what uh, I saw in doing research that uh, Democrats are, are, are working Milwaukee hard in particular. Um, in addition um, to Madison, they're, they're, they have great, you know, get out the vote efforts or better get out the vote efforts than they had in 16, which isn't saying that much, but uh but, you know, we'll see. I, I, I do think right now if I had to pick between the two candidates who would win Wisconsin, I would probably go uh, pretty, pretty strong with, with Joe Biden right now in Wisconsin. Excellent analysis there. So let's now shift our focus to the last of the three states, Minnesota. We mentioned that the poll numbers there are pretty strongly in Biden's favor. But there's been a lot of talk about Minnesota being a state that Donald Trump could surprise in sort of maybe the, the Wisconsin of this cycle. And yet you look back through the history it hasn't been since 1972 the Republican actually won in Minnesota. And of course, that includes Ronald Reagan's landslide in 1984, where Minnesota, the home state of Walter Mondale, was the one state that he lost in addition to Washington, D.C. So you wonder, is this a real possibility? Well, the good news for President Trump is that um, in terms of the amount of counties that went Republican in 2016, it's a, it's a dramatic shift. So uh, when you look at the state, like most of the state is red. 
you know, county by county. And, and that uh, is, is definitely um, a difference than what you saw in 2012 or 2008. So uh, if that continues to happen, right, you, you heard of the iron range and in Minnesota, uh, those northern parts of Minnesota, that rural part of Minnesota, uh, voting for President Trump. Uh, I think if that's the continued shift, uh, then that bodes well uh, for the president and probably is a reason why there's a lot of energy behind this idea that Minnesota could go for Trump. So if it's, if it's true that President Trump is going to continue to do well in rural counties, that, that's, that's good uh, for his campaign. But I think he's going to have to do better in these uh, more independent, uh, diverse counties closer uh, to the Twin Cities, such as Dakota and Washington counties. These are counties, by the way, in which Republicans did quite well in 2008 and 2012, uh, but in which um, Donald Trump's performance in 2016 was quite disappointing. Uh, for example, uh, Donald Trump receives 5,000 less votes in Washington County and 10,000 less votes in Dakota County uh, than did Mitt Romney. So even though Hillary Clinton did not do well in these counties or did not do as well as Barack Obama, she's still able uh, to take uh, the counties and still able uh, to take Minnesota. So the question is, well, why? A lot of what you hear when you read into these counties is this kind of great sense of uh, independence and of a balance and kind of the middle of the road and, and the kind of a Minnesota pride in not being excessive in one direction or another. So, um, I mean, that may be particular to those two suburban counties, uh, but that's very important. If, there, if a lot of Minnesota can be won by President Trump by winning those suburban and exurban places, uh, and those places are defined by their commitment to being middle of the road, independent, or wanting balance, uh, those certainly aren't words or concepts that you think of when you consider uh, the Trump presidency, or at least the way that it's been reported and the way that kind of he's acted out the role. So I'm wondering whether, um, this is I think the key for those counties, is the way that he talks about politics, does that turn more people off than the hyper-progressivism that has also turned Minnesota people off. So it's, a, it's kind yeah. of a question of, of, of two excesses and which excess will be the demise of the Trump campaign or of the Democratic Party in 2020. Great. Well, that's, that's going to wrap up our survey of these three battleground Midwestern states, Big Ten country states. Sounds like, Dave, that Pennsylvania is the most likely to land in the Trump column, and that Wisconsin and Minnesota will be, will be challenging. But as we've seen looking at the map, there's really no path to victory for President Trump without that Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida nexus. Yeah, that would be my key takeaway as, uh, as well, Matt. I think that he has to win those three states, Florida, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, uh, and that's where his energy should be these next seven weeks. So that's my takeaway of, the, of our last two weeks of research. And it wouldn't hurt if he snagged another small state somewhere so we could avoid the 269-269 disaster. Yeah, which I, if I had to guess right now, I would say New Hampshire you know, would be that kind of tipping point state. Uh, we're, we both spent a good amount of time. I grew up in New Hampshire. 
And New Hampshire has an independent streak within it, and it can go one way or another. I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Vice President Pence, uh, President Trump, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, and or Joe Biden in New Hampshire quite a bit as well in the next six or seven weeks. New Hampshireites tend to get their access to presidential candidates. <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to then be our transition to the required reading. And yesterday was Constitution Day, the 233rd anniversary of the signing of the Constitution by members of the convention. And you know, our goal last week and this week was to have one eye on the presidential race and one eye beyond. And so in honor of Constitution Day, uh, Yuval Levine had a great piece up at National Review talking about the Constitution, and really asking the question, which seemed like an obvious question, but he had an interesting answer. What is the Constitution? And his analysis as he worked his way through the answer was that there's really four different ways of thinking about what the Constitution is. I mean, the same document in all four answers, but four different ways the Constitution works, four different jobs, you might say, the Constitution takes up. What he's trying to do in the piece is, is push us toward a deeper level of engagement with the Constitution and a deeper appreciation for its role in the American regime. So here's his understanding of of what the Constitution is. Number one, it's a legal framework. And so we think about when judges have to decide constitutional questions, they have a text that they go to. And so when they have to figure out what does interstate commerce mean in Article 1, Section 8, they go to the text, they work through that, They'd make rulings on that basis. Secondly, the Constitution is a policymaking framework. It sets the boundaries between state and federal power. It describes the basic process whereby policy is made. Uh, Think about the Article 1, Section 8 list of powers. Here's the things the national government does. Here's things that states implicitly can do that aren't on that list. So as you're thinking about how you advance your policy goals, you think about doing that within the boundaries of the Constitution. Those are the two, by the way, that he thinks most people focus on when they think about the Constitution. The legal framework, the big constitutional decisions that Supreme Courts make, and then the policy side of it. How do I advance my agenda? But there's two more. Thirdly, he mentions an institutional framework. And and here's where he's talking about the three branches of the government. And while this seems like you know, third grade civics, he develops this, I think, in a very interesting way to show the significance, not just of the fact that we have three branches, but that one of them is a legislative branch, and one is an executive branch, and one is a judicial branch. And that, in other words, there's actually distinct functions. When you think about why we have three branches, it's not just because we want to have more than one voice, and we're worried about power being concentrated in this one group versus that one group. It actually corresponds with things that exist in nature, that there's actually a legislative function the government must perform. It has to make laws. There's actually an executive function, the carrying out of those laws. And it requires different attributes in the individuals who lead those two branches. Someone who's an excellent executive may not be an excellent legislator and vice versa. Likewise, judges. We need judges. There's a judicial function that's distinct from making laws and executing laws. And again, those that are good at at doing that job may not be good 
at the, at the other two jobs. And the, and the fourth thing, he says it's a political framework. And this is where sort of at the broadest, most abstract level, what is the constitution? The constitution is the preamble, right? It, it's the grand vision that all the particular details are meant to serve. The fact that you have to be 25 years old to serve in the House of Representatives is not a particularly important detail, except insofar as it advances a bigger vision, a vision captured well, explicitly in the preamble, implicitly in the broader story the Constitution tells in conjunction with documents like the Declaration of Independence, as it aims for certain ultimate ends, ultimate political purposes. So again, his, his concern is that we miss these last two when we think about politics and the Constitution, and that because of that, our politics has been impoverished. Our politics focuses on whatever our party can ram through the Congress, or maybe even more so, we're focused on getting that big win at the Supreme Court, finding the test case, getting our justices on board, creating enough social pressure behind our position so we can win that Supreme Court victory and by fiat get imposed upon the nation the policy that we desire. That, that's where the political action is. And we miss out on deeper, more permanent reflections on doing this institutional role and this political role well. And so, for example, we have a Congress that really underperforms its function. Where, where are laws made today? Well, some laws are made by Congress, but too often it's a very broad framework that comes out of Congress, and then all the real legislative work is done by the administrative state under the leadership of the president or by the judiciary, right, where it interprets the Constitution in new ways, enforces new rights, and rather than the process of negotiation, which takes place in a Congress, say, whereby everybody gives a little bit in order to get a bill through, Supreme Court decisions don't work that way. When the Supreme Court strikes down a law, the law is gone. Right? There's no negotiation or compromise. And that gets us back to this institutional framework problem, that when judges become legislators, they can't legislate well. It's not just that they, that they shouldn't do this, but they can't, because of the judicial function, do the job well. Likewise, when executives become legislators, they can't do the job well. And so what Levin's trying to get us to do, Dave, is to think more broadly about the Constitution and to really re-engage the particular vision of a tripartite government that undergirds the Constitution and to appreciate the significance of the roles of these branches in a, in a context where all we really seem to care about is the next political win. Yeah, which begs the question, well, well why do we focus on the legal framework and the policymaking framework and, and less on the institutional and political framework? Right? There's that oft-quoted line from Benjamin Franklin that um, you know, we've given you a republic if you can keep it. Uh, there's a duty or responsibility of the people to keep the republic. Uh, maintaining the institutional framework and the political framework of the Constitution uh, can only be done uh, if people with a certain character 
want it to be done, uh, both those who are office holders and those who are voting uh, for those office holders. Uh, there's that famous expression in uh, Tocqueville's Democracy in America uh, that uh, our system uh, lends itself to us being more than kings and less than men. Uh, we're kings on Tuesday, November 3rd, uh, then thereafter, we go to being less than men uh, as these legal and policy-making frameworks work themselves out. We've done our job. We've voted for our candidate. Now we can sit back and hope that what we wanted uh, will happen. Uh, but that, that's not the way that a republic functions, that a healthy republic functions. It functions on the basis of a people uh, having a certain character and their leaders having a certain character. Those are uh, difficult things. It's more difficult uh, to to pursue good character uh, than it is to perhaps pass a piece of legislation uh, because it calls upon you uh, to to realize uh, what power you've been granted, what power you have not, uh, what it means uh, to, to fulfill the function of being an executive or a legislator uh, or an adjudicator well. Uh, and as a, as a citizen, uh, to likewise look for those characteristics uh, in the people who are running for those offices or who will nominate and appoint people for those offices. So uh, I think, I think uh, Levine's piece to me suggests that, uh, that there is what, is, what is wrong has a lot to do with what we're unwilling to do after an election to help uh, make things right. I think one of the things I appreciate about the piece is the way that he emphasizes the distinction, which I think we've, we've missed a lot in our politics between what's legal, what's legally possible, what's made politically possible, and what's right under our constitutional system. So if you think about the Constitution merely as this legal framework, then you're constantly scouring it to say, okay, so let's try to figure out necessary and proper. Does that include this? Does that include that? Right? And so you're, you're focused on the details, and you're looking for the loophole. You've got a certain agenda that you're trying to impose, and you're trying to figure out a way to get that as close to constitutional as possible. And what Levin wants you to do is just take a step back and say, yeah, but there's actually an overarching ethic to the constitutional system. And so you might find a way to justify your pet project under the constitution. There might be nothing that, that a court could say, nah, you can't do that. There's no lawsuit available. There's no obvious remedy for somebody who has a grievance based upon the policy that you've implemented but it might still be wrong to do it. It might still be unconstitutional in a deep and fundamental sense and that it's unrepublican. What, what Levin wants us to do is to say that to be constitutional means more than finding a way to get it past the courts, right? That there's a, a broader set of principles, uh, a set of virtues that are embedded in the constitution more implicitly than explicitly and yet are, are just as important, if not more important, than the particular details that we can have our squabbles over from one Supreme Court session to the next. Think of the Federalist Papers, Matt. We spent a lot of time, I think 2013 through 2015, going through each of the Federalist Papers. And one of the things that becomes clear when you read the Federalist Papers, which is the case for the new constitution, is just how much of the project above and beyond introducing a new modern science of politics 
deals with questions of character. You think of the most famous Federalist Papers, Federalist 10, Federalist 51, even Federalist 1. Um, they're talking about um, things that trip human beings up and how do we deal with human character, human character uh, that hasn't changed just because you've moved into a modern world. There's still a jealousy uh, that um, defines a lot of our um, relations with others. There are, uh, you know, wrong thinking, um, uh, a wrong sense of ambition, wrong ends. And, and the Federalist Papers are loaded with a moral language as they describe the architecture of the federal constitution, right? That, that what is being put forth is, is a great republic that can be made great dependent upon the character of the people who help make it great. And um, so it's, it's one of those things where you, I, I remember a um, uh, long, long time ago meeting um, Antonin Scalia at a Washington event. And he said, uh, when I was talking about the Federalist Papers, he, he said, you know that, that uh, in no law school are the Federalist Papers taught any longer? And I couldn't believe it, but it goes to show you something, right? That type of understanding, we have a lot of former students uh, who studied law, uh, but that type of understanding of what, what went into the human element that goes into the Constitution, I think, is lost uh, upon uh, not only citizens, but people who actually function in these roles. Politics is not simply transactional. It's about matters of right and wrong, justice and injustice that requires hard work of everyone. Yeah, I think that's, that's just where Levin wants to leave things uh, at the end of this piece, for people to appreciate that it, it's really time for the American people to reclaim their constitution. And not in like a, you know, a flag-waving, we're taking our country back kind of way, but to say, no, this is actually a document for us, right? This is a document that speaks to us, that has instruction for us. This is not just for the lawyers, not just for the members of, of Congress who are trying to figure out how to get their law through, not just for presidents who are trying to figure out, can I find some justification for the exercise of this new form of executive power on my pen, my phone to do some things that maybe hasn't been able to do up until this point, but it's actually for people that the constitution speaks to people and instructs us as citizens and allows us to then engage as we do, not just in elections, but the other days of the year and of the quadrennial period, engage as citizens in a meaningful and uh, hopefully um, productive way. Uh, in, in aiming toward the common good. So as we wrap this up, just want to raise a possibility here. Dave, you mentioned our work on, on the Federalist some years ago. And if I'm looking at the calendar, there are 45 days from the day when this episode's published, September 20th, to Election Day. So 85 Federalist essays, 45 days. Two Federalist essays a day is a lot to ask. If you look at the outline of the essays, you find that beginning with Federalist 37, you start to get into the Constitution itself. You've got 14 essays on the virtues of the Union, eight essays on the vices of the Articles, and then 14 essays on kind of the general powers of government that are required in order to save the Union and improve the Articles. But with 37, you begin to look at the details of the Constitution from 3785, that's the basic theme the rest of the way. And it's under the broad heading of the republicanism of the Constitution. So if you want the heart of the Federalist teaching on republicanism, 
and the heart of its encounter with the text of the Constitution, you go 37 to 85. Now that's 49 essays, so we're getting there, right? We're getting pretty close. I'm gonna excuse you from four essays. There's three essays, 59 to 61, on the debate over whether it's proper for Congress to be able to set the time, place, and manner of elections. Read those if you have time, it's okay to skip them. You've also got 67. If you're still fired up about the injustice of the anti-federalist Cato intentionally misreading the language on who gets to appoint senators when a senator dies, then definitely read that essay. But if you want to let that go, you can skip that one too. And so you get 45 essays, 45 days. And the beauty of it is you don't just finish on election day, but essay 85 has this beautiful passage about a third of the way in where Hamilton is basically turning the matter over to the people. They spent six plus months feverishly writing essays, an amazing project to try to defend the Constitution. They've done what they can do. The product of all their learning, all their effort, Madison, Hamilton, a little bit of John Jay. And now it's time for the votes to be counted. The New York and Virginia conventions are going to begin shortly, and they've done all they can from the standpoint of making the argument. And so he turns it over to the people and says, now it's in your hands. Prove you're worthy of self-government in essence. Do not allow any partial motive, particular interest, pride of opinion, temporary passion or prejudice to get in the way of your judgment, but rather according to the best of your conscience and understanding and the sober and genuine dictates of your judgment, choose well. And while that's a charge related to the Constitution, and obviously the stakes are higher, uh, thankfully the stakes were higher in that vote than they are in any quadrennial vote for president or biannual vote for Congress or whatever. Nevertheless, that charge I think is, is a good charge for every American voter to take up, that you have a responsibility to prove yourself worthy of self-government. So what yeah. you're asking here, Professor Parks, is for yes. our listeners to spend as much time reading the Federalist Papers as they have watching Hamilton over and over <laughs> And over again. I was going to say, there's something more to Hamilton that he's not going to miss his shot, right? That he's actually giving us a shot. And you see that shot in Federalist 1 and Federalist 85, which is probably where I would begin if you were going to get inspired to read those 45. Read, read 1 and 85, where he talks about you, uh, and then uh, go to those essays, like you mentioned, 37 uh, through 84, uh, where he goes through the character of each of these branches of government, these institutions, what type of people we're looking for and why. And you've done that. You've done your part of a, as a citizen these next six weeks uh, to uh, put, uh, put things in their proper stakes and uh, proper context. Okay. Well, we're going to now turn to the grade book. And as we do that, and as we, again, try to think a little bit longer term, I want to think about the way that certain institutions and individuals on the center right, part of the, the broad coalition of those on the center right, contribute or don't contribute to the health of the republic. All right, Dave, so I'm going to start with your favorite, Republican Party establishment. The RNC, Mitch McConnell, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, it, it tends to be conservative, but not the conservatism that, that I embrace it. It's conservative in the sense that it, it conserves its power. Uh, it's interested in maintaining its place. Um, 
being able to open doors or have doors opened uh, for it. Do I believe that the Republican Party establishment is one that is going to uh, work toward the goal that that we've put forward that uh, Levin says is is necessary in which we understand that more human element to the Constitution? Probably not. Uh, but if I know anything about the Republican Party establishment, if it notices that something good is going on, it won't get in your way. <laughs> It'll right. put its finger up in the air and say, okay, this may be something silly, but uh, that I wouldn't be interested in doing, but uh, all right, if it doesn't hurt me, I, I won't be against it. That that was my experience in New Hampshire politics anyway. So I, I, yeah, I'm going to be uh, kind and give the Republican Party establishment a D. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I'm going to say a C uh, because, you know, you think about, I mentioned Mitch McConnell, somebody's got to figure out a way to get the bills through the Congress. And one of the things that we find sometimes with uh, the insurgents that, that get into Congress who Great, great ideas, great vision, but they kind of like their media role maybe more than the role of doing some of the heavy lifting to actually turn the vision into policy. And so that's, that's where those old hands can be helpful. Get out the vote efforts, right? Likewise, kind of the institutional structure of these things. So you don't want them leading the show, but you kind of got to have them in tow. You want them following the parade, uh, you, you need some of the, the broader institutional support, maybe, if you're going to actually execute a plan that's wisely conceived and led by somebody who's not part of, of that establishment. All right, second group, old line conservatives, I'm going to call them. So the critics today, you might hear them called conservative Inc. Um, but I'm talking about Heritage Foundation. I'm talking about AEI, where Levin is actually, National Review kind of old guard conservative institutions. As we look forward, what do you think, Dave? What, what grade would you give them as, as their contribution for the reinvigoration of our politics? Well, I think the argument that's been made against conservative incorporated is a good argument, um, but I'm not so sure that that's what was intended by the people who became part of Conservative Incorporated. So I think a lot of great discussions took place uh, at a variety of different um, symposia uh, and, and all the rest. And we've been to some of these in Washington, DC. Uh, but I, I think oftentimes that discussion led to nowhere. Um, it, it, it didn't thereafter produce uh, a marshalling of resources across the country. It didn't produce kind of um, a a spreading out or dissemination uh, towards an educated citizenry. And it, it often produced a, a great amount of wealth and well-being and, and fame uh, for the people who were part of Conservative Incorporated. But um, I don't think that that was necessarily their intention. I think that if they were to do it all over again, uh, that they probably would have done things differently. So um, I think the intentions were there, were good. Uh, so I'd give them an A there. But in terms of the follow through, um, it, it didn't really work out as, as it was supposed to. So it was a, a more of a C minus in how it worked out, which you yeah, had to average it to. I'd, I'd probably put old line conservatives somewhere around a B. Uh, so what would I hope? I would hope that they would learn from this 30, 40 year experience, uh, not give up on doing things like Levin has done in this piece, uh, but 
how do you take what you want and think should happen in theory and make it happen in the practical world? That's how you move from a B minus B to an A. Yeah, there's no doubt that that has to happen. And that's one of the weaknesses of the conservative movement, the old line conservative movement. I think the difficulty is that those that are challenging them on the establishment side don't have any ideas and are too pliable when it comes to principles. And then the kind of insurgency we're going to talk about next has, has some ideas, but more has kind of a mood, right? Has, has kind of a, a, a feel to it. And so while it may be that the old line conservatives, you know, one, one more white paper coming out of heritage or something um, doesn't always move the needle in terms of the political conversation, somebody has got to do some of this, this work. Somebody has got to come up with, creative proposals, somebody's got to advance intellectual arguments, um, even if that's not the sum total of the matter, right? Even if you can get lost doing that and, and keep, you know, get your eye off the ball of actual advancing a policy agenda and achieving political ends, someone still has to do that. And what I don't see is anybody else out there on the center right who's well positioned to do that. So, I'm, I'm going to hope that, as you say, some of the lessons have been learned over the last decades and that in the absence of anybody else being well positioned to fill this gap, uh, the intellectual gap, that, that this group will revitalize itself. And I'm, so I'm going to say a B plus uh, moving forward. All right. Thirdly, we've got the conservative and populist insurgents. And you know, this could be more recent. So like Tucker Carlson, American Greatness, Turning Point USA. But Rush Limbaugh, I think, has really positioned himself in this way, even though he might have been an old line conservative in, a, in another era, but he, he sort of rebranded himself, I think, for the Trump era. Others have as well. Uh, so how about that group as we move forward, regardless of what happens on November 3rd? Right? How, how does that group fit into the mix as we move on from here? Well, I think the challenge for that group is – if you can rightly identify something that's wrong with the conservative movement, conservative incorporated, at that point, do you thereafter humbly uh, try to propose a remedy uh, in which you're working with those individuals who, uh, or, or those groups um, who kind of turned the conservative movement in the wrong direction or didn't allow it to, to kind of marshal its resources in the right way. So uh, do, you, do you work to improve, to, to make that which wasn't uh, great uh, better, uh, or do you just continue to uh, be upset uh, at that old guard uh, for, for what they did wrong? And, and, so I, I'm very much uh, in favor. I, I think Rush Limbaugh has done tremendous things. I, I very much enjoy uh, Tucker Carlson at times. There are some great pieces that you see on American Greatness. But um, I, I think there's got to be a level of respect, um, a form uh, that is sometimes lacking here. So uh, I would once again say, uh, the correction is necessary, so that's what, why I, I give the conservative and populist insurgents an A minus A. Uh, but the manner of proceeding and trying to build a coalition um, uh, thereafter uh, can't simply be pointing a finger uh, and um, you know winning at all costs. So that that part of it would be uh, more average. Um, so. Uh, likewise, I put them right around a B minus B with the hope that um, I, I guess what I'm trying to say here, Matt, is that I don't see it as um, 
necessary that these two groups, the O-line conservatives and these populist insurgents, can't find a way uh, to come back together. I'm hopeful that if we're going to overcome the hurdles, the mountain actually that's before us, that, that, that that's going to have to happen. I agree. I think there's, there's probably some things on both sides. There's definitely a matter of humility and graciousness that's just lacking among the insurgents in general. I don't think it's productive in the long run from the standpoint of achieving the political purposes. So there needs to be some working together of, of these last two groups, really all three groups. That's, that's the challenge here, right? They're all, they're all three going to have to play their part and finding a way for the groups to work together well so that they can, where they have common ends, actually achieve their common purposes is I think critically important going forward. And it's been a rough four years for this, honestly. Right? I think, I think there's, you know, there's been a tearing apart at the seams. And whatever happens in November, that movement's going to have to be stronger going forward because the progressive movement has gained strength in that time. But we do have a model right, in the founding where you know, we do see um, these three different types you know, coming together, um, the, the, the thinking, the marshalling uh, together uh, that, um, that helps you know, pull the country uh, in the right direction. Kind of the, the admixture of uh, greatness, the desire for greatness and honor, uh, but also uh, goodness uh, and ethic. I, I, I think those are these main elements of what make conservatism great uh, when it is great. We wrap it up each week with the Tocqueville's crystal ball. And last week, we introduced a new way of organizing this by taking a look at five different contests from five different sports for the weekend to come. Uh, we're going to vary the sports from week to week as the seasons vary and as our whims dictate. Uh, it was a good week for me last week. Not so good for Dave. Uh, I went four and one. He was one and four. Round two this week, we start with the NFL, New England at Seattle. And this is a sucker thing for you, Dave, because I think it's impossible for you not to pick the Patriots. Yeah, but I think this week I will take the Patriots and, <laughs> and the four points. Okay. Um, yeah, well, I mean, a three-point loss would actually be enough, right? So can they go on the road to Seattle? Always tough those West Coast trips against Russell Wilson. Belichick's been saying some very nice things about Russell Wilson over the course of the week. But no 12th man, as, as the Seattleites are proud of their 12th man status. True, there there will not be a 12th man, 12th man on the field that day. So yeah, Patriots for the points. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Seattle. I, I think Seattle got off to a great start last week. And I don't know, Cam Newton looked great, but I'm not sure they can do 15 carries for 75 yards every week. And if he has to throw, I'm not sure he has the weapons just yet. If they've got everybody on the same page, Nikhil Harry still feels like he's a ways away. So I think I'm going to stick with uh, Seattle. And All right, number two, Denver at the Lakers tonight in the bubble. Lakers are favored by seven points. Denver out of nowhere knocks off Kawhi Leonard and the Clippers in seven games. What do you think? Can they take out the Lakers too? Well, the Lakers lost the first game against the Rockets, and the Nuggets are on a roll. So I'm going to say the Nuggets take this game as well. I don't know if they'll win the series, but I think they'll make it interesting. So I'm going to pick the Nuggets here. Okay, I, I think that they're going to make an interesting series too, but I have a feeling that the Lakers, who have just seen the Clippers lose three in a row, are not going to be caught napping on this one. I think they're going to come out strong. I think they, they cover the seven points and then, and then some – now, they may have a letdown after that, and I wouldn't be surprised if it goes six, seven games, 
I have a feeling game one they're going to be up for it and, and they're going to make sure they don't have the same thing happen and that happened to the Clippers. All right, we're going back to the Premier League. Big match. Chelsea at home against Liverpool. Liverpool, the defending champions. Chelsea then a lot of business during the transfer window looking to close the gap, maybe make that top two of Liverpool, Manchester City a top three, maybe challenge for the title themselves. What do you think, Dave? No fans there either, but still the home ground tends to help a little bit. I'm going to take Chelsea in this one. Yeah, I, I think that they uh, they win this at home. I'm, I'm just I've got a feeling that they're going to pull this one out. Okay, well I'm going to go the opposite. I think it's going to be Liverpool. Given that Chelsea is a big rival of Tottenham, I'm going to root against them anyway. So I'm going to I'm going to pick Liverpool for maybe some of the same reasons that you would pick the Patriots, regardless of the actual situation. All right, we've got the U.S. Open Golf Championship. And, of course, this is being played even as we speak, and I've, I've got the leaderboard up. And just as I was pulling it up, it changed. Patrick Reed made a birdie. So Patrick Reed is now minus four. Got three holes to go in his second round. Bryson DeChambeau is in the clubhouse at minus three. We've got several other players, but only a few others under par, including Justin Thomas, a few other notable names, Bubba Watson near the top of the leaderboard, John Rahm. Who's going to win the U.S. Open, Dave? Yeah, it's a... It's kind of it's amazing leaderboard, right? Because you have all the. I mean, Reed is a is kind of a good villain, right? DeChambeau gained what forty five pounds in muscle over the last right. weight. Uh, I'm not saying it's steroids, but uh, it could be a wrestling match by the time this thing is done. <laughs> Reed and DeChambeau would be fun. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I don't. You know, I see Bubba Watson. Uh, he's not too far behind right now. Um, he's tied for tenth. Uh, so. I, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and say Bubba Watson comes back. Uh, he had a good second round. That If he can stay within two or three shots, the lead um, by today, I think he could pull this off. So, and that would, which would be quite dramatic, right? Because uh, from what I've read, uh, the storm and all that that came through Sally uh, kind of right in his backyard. So we'll see. Uh, that, that, that's the, I'm, I'm choosing that narrative. Bubba Watson Taking takes Bubba. the U.S. Open. Okay. All right. Yeah, that'd be fun. So I think I'm going to – I think I'm going to take Patrick Reed. He comes up big sometimes in the, in the majors and he's got one of those just doesn't care kind of attitudes. I think, you know, Bryson DeChambeau is, is such a pain to play with because he's so slow and he's got all these weird habits and things. And I think he kind of rattles people sometimes, but I think Patrick Reed would just kind of get mad about all that and he might very well do better because of it. So looks like, if things end the way they are now, they'll be the two that are paired tomorrow and who knows on Sunday. I think Patrick Reed hangs in there, holds on, and wins the U.S. Open. That's in your backyard as well, right? So It is not far from here. I know. There, there was a time when we looked at some of these upcoming majors and we thought, you know, we should really rent out our house during the, you know, these tournaments and even the U.S. Open uh, tennis, right? Not too far from where we are. Right. But that was before COVID. We've got one more. We save the best for last, the most important. Yankees at Red Sox. This pathetic Red Sox season has got to come to an end soon, and it will come to an end, uh, I guess, a week next weekend. But in the meantime, we got one more series against the Yankees. It's been a terrible year all the way around, but especially against the Yankees. The question, we're not going to try to imagine the Red Sox could sweep this series, but, but the question I've got for you, Dave, over under one win for the Red Sox out of three. Wow, so I went to, real quickly on my internet to try to f- – figure out who's pitching uh, for the Red Sox. And, but that probably wouldn't do us any good since the team ERA is what, you know, six runs a game. It's horrific. Yeah. Horrific. So um, 
I'm going to say the Yankees win two and the Red Sox win one. So the Red Sox take one. So Yeah, I mean, Yankees have won eight in a row coming into this. So that's not great. Red Sox have won five out of the last 10. So they're hot too. In a, you know, in relative sort of way, in a 2020 kind of way. So uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think they can take one of them. Their, their best pitcher went yesterday, so that doesn't help. But you know, they'll 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 maybe catch them napping one one out of the three games. But this is this horrible season is drawing to a close. I mean, honestly, winning one out of three is probably a, a net win for the Red Sox given the expectations of, of where we are at this point. And then soon it can all be over and we can start thinking about how they might spend all that money they saved by trading Mookie bets and actually get some pictures for next year. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week's show. Thanks as always for listening. We appreciate your support. Please don't forget to follow the show, subscribe at Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Mm-hmm.